Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, and that's page 846 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. This morning we're going to be finishing up uh, what sort of inadvertently had become a mini-series on the family. Uh, a few weeks ago, I preached on discipleship and marriage. Then uh, following that, Caleb brought an excellent message on biblical manhood. Then Jim, out of his extensive wealth of knowledge and personal experience, spoke on biblical womanhood. And then today, I'm going to finish up by talking about discipleship and children. And so uh, if you haven't listened to those, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. It's been a really good, really good little series, and uh, I've been excited about it. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, what comes to mind when you think about children? I mean, honestly, how do you view them? Well, there should be a lot of different answers in this room. I mean, some, it's like, hey, they're a blessing from the Lord. Love children. They're great. I, I see the children are our future. You know, you teach them well and let them lead the way. You're starting to sing that, you know. Uh, you got you got miniature versions of yourself. I don't know if you saw earlier, but Quinn was holding Crew, and even though he's a nephew, I, I joke around that, that Crew is kind of a mini Quinn, and when he gets older and he doesn't wear skinny jeans and those purple V-necks, he'll be Manny Quinn, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I worked on that one hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, do we see we see children as like somebody to dress up and play house with? You know, uh, someone to who will love you unconditionally. Do you see see children as as basically a, a means of fulfilling that fatherly or motherly instinct that you have? Are they just some kind of really hyper intelligent toy or pet? Do you see them as some physical and social science experiment? You know, I mean, or, or do you see them maybe, maybe differently? Do you see them like a, a, as a nuisance, as a distraction, as an expense, as some sort of obstacle that might keep you from fulfilling your ultimate goals, your ultimate dreams, your ultimate passions? They cost a lot, they smell a lot, they make a lot of noise, and they shorten your lifespan because of lack of sleep and all the stress they give you, Right? All they do is eat, eat poop, and, and sleep, you know, or and cry. Or, or do you see them of little value because they can't contribute to society? They basically can't carry their weight. You know, you might be chuckling to yourself as I ask you these questions, but they're, these are just a few of the ways that our culture views children. I mean, if you look at the statistics, what you see is that birth rates are decreasing while birth prevention rates are increasing. It's estimated that 42 million abortions occur each year throughout the world. 3,700 per day in the United States. That is 2.56 per minute. Now, when we talk about abortion, we always talk about, well, what about rape and incest? What about health problems to the mother or to the baby? Well, here's the thing. Statistics say that only about 1% of abortions occur because of rape or incest. And I actually think that that's way too high. Uh, and then only about 6% because of health-related issues for the mother or baby. 93% are for social reasons. The child is unwanted or is inconvenient. You add to this the fact that we are working longer hours. We are, we are focused on our career, on our future, or we're spending more time, more energy, more money than ever before on our pleasures, on our desires, on the things that we want to do, our little hobbies. 
We may not sacrifice our children physically at the doctor's office, but instead we sacrifice them daily, emotionally and relationally, as we pursue our success, our ambitions, our greed, our gain, and our pleasures. People are waiting longer to get married. They're waiting longer to have children. They're extending their own childhood, as it will. Family size is decreasing, and people are having fewer children altogether. In today's culture, children are a burden or an obstacle. However cute the burden may be, they are still considered a burden, and it leaves many people asking the question, why even bother? That's how our culture operates. But as those who would be disciples of Christ, as those who would follow Christ, we must think about children the way that Jesus does. We are to love them. We are to lead them to Christ. We are to enter the kingdom of God as a child. Now, these point, that, those are the three points to my sermon. They may seem obvious, but if you look at, how, at our, our attitudes, if you look at our actions, if you look at the way we spend our time, our energy, our money, you find that, that we can ignore or disregard the obvious. So lest we be in danger of following the same pattern, let's hear from what Jesus has to say about discipleship and children from our text. Again, that's Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, page 846 there in the Bibles in the chairs. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. First, let me just begin with a quick prayer before we go further. Father, we, we pray that, um, that this truth that from this text would, would sink deep into our hearts. That our affections for children would be like that of Christ. And that our faith would be like that of a child who wants to enter, who wants to follow, who wants to trust. God, help us to be faithful with this. Do your work in us, in our families, in our relationships, in our church. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, Jesus teaches that us to love children. Now, we have to remember that this passage fits in the broader context where Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. He's already given us sufficient verbal and physical witness as to his true identity, that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God. We have seen this through manifestations of his divine glory as he taught with great authority, as he performed miracle after miracle after miracle after he has performed exorcisms. He has even given Peter, James, and John the opportunity to, to see a physical manifestation of his divine glory on the mountain in his transfiguration in, in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jesus has begun to teach them about what, why he came, what he was there to do, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He would be rejected, he would suffer, he would die, and three days later he would rise again. And now, most recently, as he makes his way to the cross to do what he was purposed to do in, in taking on flesh, he focuses his attention on the disciples, teaching them what it means to follow him. 
And we begin to see all sorts of things. That, that a disciple of Christ must be dependent in prayer. They are to serve as one who considers themselves last of all and a slave to all. They must pursue unity with one another. They have to deal seriously with their sin. In a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus expects his disciples, if they are joined to a spouse in covenant marriage, what that is supposed to look like. How seriously we are to take that. And now he's dealing with children. And what we should be seeing here is that there is not one aspect of life. There is not one thing that you encounter that as a disciple of Christ, that Jesus does not have claim on. We cannot relegate Christianity to certain areas of our life or certain appointments on our calendar, certain times during the week, certain areas to the neglect of others. If you are a follower of Christ, he changes, he affects everything, every relationship, every action, every purpose, every word, every thought. Every moment of every day, he claims ownership on it. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And we're seeing that here with regards to children. In our passage, Jesus no more finishes his discussing marriage with his disciples in verses 10 through 12 than when verse 13 picks up. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and his disciples rebuked him. Now, we're not told who they are. We simply know that they are not Jesus or the appointed 12 disciples. That's all we know about they, right? Were they believers? Well, we can't be sure. It is possible that in bringing these children to Jesus, this is an act of worship, that they do recognize that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and they want to bring their children to him to be blessed. But if you understand the historical context then you know that it's not uncommon for parents to bring their children to rabbis who they respect in order for the rabbis to pray for them and bless them. This was a common practice. It happened over and over and over again. If you knew about a rabbi or a pastor or teacher or something like that that you respected, well, you wanted to bring your child to him so he could pray for him, so he could bless them. You see this happen throughout the course of history. It is not uncommon at all. So these people may simply just recognize Jesus as a teacher. They may simply recognize him as as a rabbi and nothing more, but still not know his true identity, that he is the Son of God. We just don't have enough information in the context to know for sure. Mark says that they were bringing children to Jesus. And the word that he uses here refers to very young children or infants. In fact, if you look at Luke's account in Luke 18, Luke uses a different word that means infants. So Mark uses this word that typically means infants or young children. But if you notice how Mark uses it throughout the gospel, you recognize he uses it very, very broadly. He uses it in chapter 5, talking about Jairus' daughter. This girl who is 12 years of age, whom Jesus raised to life again. He uses it in chapter 7 to refer to the Syrophoenician's daughter. Again, this girl who was possessed by a demon. Now, she had to be old enough for them to tell that she was actually possessed by a demon, right? An infant, it would be kind of hard to tell unless the infant began to levitate off the bed and its head span, you know, was spinning around. That doesn't really happen in the Bible, you know. We can't, we can't go off of the exorcist on that one, right? So 
probably had to be communicating in order for us to know, wow, there's something very, very wrong with this girl, very disturbing, very sinful about what's happening here. It's also used in Mark chapter 9, referring to the boy who had the mute and deaf spirit. Now, this, this boy was clearly older. We don't know how old, but he was clearly older. So what you see is that Mark uses this word for child to refer from anything from an infant all the way up to an adolescent and everything in between. And I think that that's the way he's using it here, that it's a range, that they were bringing a range of children of different ages to Jesus from from infancy to adolescence. And it doesn't really matter. And I think that Jesus is actually pointing us towards the fact that these children were older because he says, let the children come to me. It indicates mobility, that they have the ability to go to him. Right. But we don't know for sure. How old they are, it, it doesn't really matter. We'll see. And we see that, that it, they brought them to these children to Jesus in order to be blessed. Laying on of hands, prayers, and blessings were common Jewish practices. Now, people often overemphasize the laying on of hands with the imparting of the Holy Spirit, right? Like New Testament believers, you know, Christians kind of look at that and they're like, oh yeah, laying on of hands, that's imparting the, new, the Holy Spirit. But that hasn't happened yet. Okay, we have to deal with laying on the hands from the Old Testament. How is it used there? And when we look there, we see that, hey, this is common. This happened a lot. And it's always about blessing. It's always about praying for that. This was something that the priests did to children to bless them. Or this was something that the elder of the family did in order to bless his children, like Jacob blessed his children before he died, laid his hands on them. Right? That's what it means. It's, it's, this is not some magical incantation. This is not some imparting of the Holy Spirit. This is not some miracle that's performed. Jesus is praying for them. He's blessing them the same way that you might lay your hands on you know, one of my boys and, and pray for them and bless them. Right? That's what's happening here. Now, all of that said, giving the background, giving that context, I have to clear up some misunderstandings. Because you may not believe it, but this is one of the most abused passages in all of Scripture. There's more eisegesis, that is reading your own meaning, reading your own theology into the text, happens here more than anywhere else that I've seen in Scripture. It is unbelievable the things that people can extrapolate out of it, and I think it has to do with the fact that, that this is such an emotional issue. We're dealing with children here. What do we think about that, particularly when it comes to children and mortality? Right? And so that has influenced the way that people read this text. So I've got to, I've got to tell you a little bit about what this passage doesn't say about children. This passage, first of all, doesn't say that all children will be saved. Okay? It doesn't say that all children will be saved. Some people think that this passage teaches an age of accountability which children have to reach a certain level before they are now morally culpable, before they understand the severity and consequence of their sin and and claim responsibility for it. Until they reach that time, then they're okay. But Jesus says in verse 14, let the children come, meaning of their own volition, to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It says to such, not that these children belong to the kingdom of God, but to such belongs the kingdom of God. This passage is about attitude and actions of those who would receive the kingdom of God, not about their age. Do you get that? This is about what they do and how they think about Jesus. 
That's what indicates whether or not they receive the kingdom of God, not about how young or old they are. So it doesn't teach an age of accountability. It's not, this doesn't teach that, children, that infants and young children will automatically be saved. Now, I know that this is a sensitive issue, guys. I have children. I understand deeply what it means to, to, to want to think of my children as believers and want them desperately to believers, be believers. And what happens if they die? That's not an easy thing. But you know what? We can't get that from this passage. We have to look elsewhere to kind of argue for those types of things. What we're going to need to take from this passage is the same thing that Jesus is calling to, the attitude that we are to have, that we are to simply and obediently, like a child, trust in God, that He is good, that He is loving, that He is kind, that He is sovereign, that He knows what best, He knows the fate of your child. That's what we hope in. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. This passage also doesn't teach that children will be saved if they have believing parents. Now, some people read and they think that, okay, these, these parents, clearly there's more likely the parents brought these children to Jesus. That indicates that they are believers. And then Jesus blesses them. And he says that, hey, if you belong like these, then you're, you're part of the kingdom of God. So they're thinking, okay, no, no, not all children are saved. But if, if the parents show faith and Jesus blesses the child, then they're saved. Then it's okay, right? Because you've got this kind of whole thing working off. I mean, this is, this is Martin Luther. There's a number of people that, that kind of think this. But that's not what it teaches. We've already seen that we don't have enough textual evidence to support the faith of the parents. In fact, the historical evidence argues for neutrality. But other passages are certainly clear that one is saved by repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus that it requires a personal faith, not the faith of someone else. Now, I wish, man, do I wish that, that it was possible for other people to come to faith based upon my belief. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Like, all I got to do is I got to take my kids up, share the gospel with them, boom, they're good, or we could do this with anybody. That would be way too easy, you know? Don't even tell them what you're doing. Just invite all your unbelieving friends. Hey, man, we're, we're, we're going to have this awesome, we're going to have a kegger. You know, we invite them to the party, something that we know they'll go to or we'll go to a concert and we just kind of slip in the gospel and boom, they're believers. That'd be awesome. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It requires personal faith. Your faith or the faith of your parents won't get you there. You have to believe in Jesus. Now, I got to say something to you because I don't know all your stories. Are you trying to live off of the faith of your parents? This is an easy thing to do. People kind of think, okay, I grew up in the church. I kind of heard the gospel. I was baptized at a young age. I'm okay. When the reality is I couldn't care less about living for Jesus. Guys, that's not faith. That's not what Jesus calls us to here. So if that's you, you need to respond. By repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus. You need the forgiveness of God that comes only through faith in Christ. It has to be yours. It cannot be anyone else's. It has to be yours. Another misinterpretation. This passage does not teach that infants and young children should be baptized. Okay? You know, many of our Reformed Pado baptist brothers look at this passage, 
to support their position that infants should be baptized. They say, look, I mean, these parents, they brought their children to Jesus. These are probably infants. Jesus blesses them. It's good to go. Kingdom of God is theirs. Uh, but I just have one question. Where's the water? I, I didn't see it. I kept looking. I couldn't find it. Jesus does take the children in his arms and he blesses them. He lays his hands on them and he prays for them. Yes, this is awesome, but, but he does not go and dunk them in the river or sprinkle water on top of them, does he? No, he doesn't at all. And it's important to remember from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 26, that Jesus and his disciples do baptize people. They do. So why not here? Does it matter? I think so. This is a dry passage. I like the way Spurgeon put it in his sermon on this text. His first point to his sermon on this text was, this text has not the shadow of a ghost of a connection with baptism. (laughs) Or as Mark Dever puts it, you have plenty of texts on baptism. You have plenty of texts on babies. You just never see them together. The point is not to bring children to the baptism fount. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is to bring them to Christ. They need Jesus. It's not about the baptism of a three-month-old or a three-year-old, but the attitude of a 30-year-old. That's what matters. Now, we should also be warned here about the baptism of young children, that we shouldn't baptize them too early. We do the church, we do Christianity, we do them a horrible disservice if we baptize too early. This happens over and over and over again. You see people, like you're working with somebody and you're talking to them and man, they are just like, they're involved in everything. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. And then one day you get in a conversation, you realize, hey, they say they're a Christian. You're like, what? How how is it you say you're a Christian? He's like, oh yeah, I was baptized when I was five, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, we do a disservice when we baptize too early. Now, I'm not questioning the sincerity of the children's faith at that time. Okay? This is a touchy issue, but how informed is that faith? What we need to see is evidence of regeneration. We need to see evidence of conversion. We need to see evidence of God's grace working in their lives through faith so that they are being changed before we baptize. Because if we do it too early... We deceive them into thinking that they are when they might not be. Only time will kind of tell for that. So we, we kind of take a position of caution here at Redeemer. It doesn't mean that we won't baptize fairly young God, children, but we want to make sure that there's evidence of faith before we do that. <clears throat> Furthermore, this passage does not teach that we should dedicate our babies. Okay, baby dedications can be big in some churches, and, and we, we celebrate the fact that children are born in our church. This is great. This is glorious. We love it. Hey, nine days from now, we're going to have one new one. It's going to be awesome. But here's the thing. We don't celebrate that by having a little upfront, front of the church kind of ceremony for them. We celebrate through serving. The families. We celebrate through pursuing community and relationships and loving on their children, literally, not just bringing them up there and kind of making a show of it. Now, there are plenty of, of ceremonies that are implicitly and explicitly mentioned in Scripture. I mean, you've got weddings, you've got Lord's Supper, baptism, 
corporate worship gathering, fellowship meals, you know, so on and so forth, but you never have baby dedications. Never. Unless you're going to say that baby dedication is a substitute for circumcision. We're not just going to go there. We do, we're as a church, we don't do that. We understand circumcision is purely hygienic these days. You can do it or not. You know, we're, we're new covenant believers. It's all good. Um, so there's, there's not that there. All right. And then if you understand the history behind it, what you recognize is that, wait, baby dedications were actually started very late in church history by believers Baptists in order to appease those who were sensitive towards infant baptism. Right. Hey, we can get all these people that like infant baptism in our, in our churches if we just kind of we substitute baby dedications for them. You see what is going here? It, it, this is not there's no theological evidence for it whatsoever. So we don't do it. So that's that's what this text is not about, okay? That's what it's not about. Now maybe I can get to what it's actually about. Uh, this passage is focused on the attitude of those who would follow Jesus Christ. Now in Jesus' day, you know, we talked about how, how children are often neglected or seen as obstacles today. In Jesus' day, it was even worse, okay? We we kind of like, we we we're... Man, our, our culture is so paradoxical. We are in one minute, we look at children as an obstacle, as a hindrance, but then, then they're like this cute little idol that we want to exalt and kind of give them everything and build up their self-esteem and all this kind of stuff. You know, we're just weird like that. But in Jesus' day, childhood was, to con- was considered to be something that you had to endure until you can get to an age of productivity, until you could benefit your family or society through work. They were considered to be weak and needy and unimportant. In that culture, they were not adored. They were just tolerated. Okay? Um, and you can see from this passage that that's the attitude that Jesus' disciples have. They hindered the little children from coming to Jesus, and they rebuked those who brought these little children to him. Okay? Now, perhaps... The intentions of the disciples were good. Perhaps they were noble. I mean, after all, Jesus' time is very limited. He is drawing crowds larger than ever before, and they are just trying to police it. They're kind of looking like, hey, it's great that they've got these kids, but these kids can't even understand what Jesus is saying. We've got to focus Jesus' efforts on the most influential leaders, on on the key members of society, and do all that. And so they were kind of acting as bodyguards or managers or administrative assistants, kind of keeping Jesus' calendar, making sure he completes all his tasks that he needs to do. Maybe that's what they're thinking, but that doesn't explain Jesus' response. Look at verse 14. It says, when Jesus saw it, he became indignant. This is the one time in Scripture that Jesus is described in this way. Not even when he's cleansing the temple. Not even when he's rebuking the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are leading people astray. He was angry with them. He was indignant. He was hot. He was flat out mad. And he lets them know about it. Why is he so upset? Well, do you remember back in chapter 9, verses 30 through 37? The disciples had been arguing with one another over who is the greatest, right? And Jesus responded to them by saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And then in verse 36, he takes this child and he places it before him. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And what do the disciples do with that? Did they learn from that experience? Did they remember that in this time? No. What they did is John went out. He tries to, uh, to stop this unknown exorcist who was casting out demons in Jesus' name in 9, 38 through 41. And now they are rebuking people and bringing, uh, for bringing children to Jesus and hindering little children from coming to him. See, they are still seeking self-importance. They are still exalting themselves. They are still showing partiality after Jesus has warned them twice already. And so Jesus becomes indignant with them. He could, they, they couldn't get it through their thick heads how countercultural Jesus' love really was. They aren't following him as he would have them to. And so he lets them have it. But in verse 16, Jesus actually shows us his tenderness. He shows us his love. He says, it says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Rather than merely tolerating or dismissing them, Jesus loves these little children. It's actually a good song to sing with your kids, according to this passage. They are as important to him as adults, equally worthy of love, equally worthy of the kingdom of God. Jesus loves the little children and his disciples should do no less. Now, I wonder, in light of this, how do you view children? How do you see them? Let's be honest. There's a lot of singles in this room. You know, it's a little bit different when you have young kids. I mean, we see them as cute and all right. I mean, they're definitely cute. They say the darndest things, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, children are often seen as an obstacle In our path, as we're trying to achieve, as we're trying to fulfill our dreams, our desires, they just kind of get in the way. They're seen as as some sort of expensive expectation that we have to to deal with on our life journey. You know, our our life journey is mapped out for us. You know, you kind of grow up, you go to school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, and you die. That's your life journey. And the culture and your family, they all expect you to do it. You have to do it, right? So just grin and bear it. Just deal with it. Children, they make messes. They get in your way. They use up valuable resources. They're, they're a distraction. I wonder how many times you all grumble when you sit in here when a, when a kid makes a noise in a worship service. Or I, I wonder how often you kind of get frustrated when they interrupt the conversation that you're trying to have with one of their parents. You know, I, I, I wonder, you know, if you would rather be gone on those weeks that you're scheduled in the children's ministry or you are appointed as community servant in your community groups because you don't want to go down there and tolerate them. Am I getting anybody? Friends, this is not the way it should be. And not simply in terms of following Christ's commands. Okay? As in love children. There's something more going on here. There's something behind the reason why Jesus says love children. When we love children like Jesus loves children, we say something about the gospel. That Jesus loved and sacrificed for the helpless and the insignificant. That's you and me. 
we say something about the value of life, that I am willing to serve those who cannot serve me because they were created in the image of God. And when they're created in the image of God, that means that they're valuable and they are worthy of my love. And when we love children, like Jesus loves children, we say something about God who loves and serves those who did not and cannot love and serve Him back. Friends, loving children is not a duty. It's a privilege. Loving children is every bit as an expression of worship as sitting in here and singing songs is. No less. In fact, I would say more. Because you can sing songs all day. And it's self-serving. And it's just words off a whitewashed tomb. Now, for those of you who have been faithfully serving in our children's ministry, I just want to thank you. All right? It is such a blessing to see the church want to come around and love our children. Thank you for loving my children. Thank you for loving the children here. It's such a blessing to see the way that you guys are looking and trying to serve our children, whether it be in Sunday mornings or whether it be in our community groups or, or, or children in the community. I want to commend that. I want to love that. Man, this is great. Do it. Do it more. For those of you who still kind of see that as a, an unwelcome duty, I'd ask you to dwell deeply on the love that God has shown you in Jesus Christ. You were once a child of wrath. But through Christ, you are now a child of God. That love for children who hated, who rebelled, who are nuisances, who are just ungrateful, unproductive, weak, helpless, expensive, that love freed us from the pursuit of ourselves so that we might experience His love and be conformed to the image of His love in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is not a burden. This is worship. So I pray that you'll see it as such. Now that was a very long point. Okay? The, the next two are going to come much quicker. Okay? Because they're all building off of what I've already established. Second, not only are we called to love and follow Christ by loving children, but we are also called to lead children to Christ. Now, it's not enough for us to love children and commend the gospel through social justice for children. We need to tell children about Jesus. Right? The only thing that sets us apart from anyone else, whether that be a benevolent Buddhist or an altruistic atheist or a very loving and, and gracious Muslim, is the fact that we know, ultimately, the motivation and the goal of love, which is Jesus Christ. If we are not commending that, then our, our love is no different than their love. Anyone can be involved in social welfare for children. Anyone can build orphanages or hospitals or things of the like in third world, third world countries. Right? The one thing that helps us to stand distinct is the proclamation of the gospel. We know, ultimately, the purpose behind love. We know the fullest expression of love. The love of God that is given through Jesus Christ, through His sacrificial death 
for sinners, for rebels against God, against those, those who hated God and are now brought in to God's love. Not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has accomplished. Children need to know that. In our text, those who brought the children to Christ are commended while the disciples are rebuked for being a hindrance. Jesus wants the little children to come to him. He wants to bless them. He wants them to receive the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is only received by those such as these. This is not a guarantee that these children have received the kingdom of God, but of the certainty that they need Jesus. If anyone is to gain the kingdom of God, you must come to him. You must receive Jesus. You must repent. You must turn away from yourself and turn towards Christ to follow him, believing in the gospel of God. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, not sort of bringing in the kingdom of God on earth through our good works, but seeing the kingdom of God reveal as people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot bring our children to Jesus physically. But we can share the gospel with them. We can encourage them to trust God. This message is first to parents as those who have a primary responsibility to lead and teach their children. But it's also a call to all of us. If you are part of this church and there are children in this church, then you, just as the parents and just as the pastors, have an obligation, according to Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, and Colossians 1, 28, and many, many other passages to help all people within the church to reach maturity in Christ, children included. This means that you singles out there are not off the hook. That you can't just cash out on this one because you don't have kids. You too have an obligation to love our children and lead them to Christ. You cannot be neutral on this. And here's why. When you abdicate your responsibility to love children and to share the gospel with them, you are teaching them that loving And leading children to Christ is optional. You can take it or leave it. You're you're actually denying this passage in your actions by neglecting children. Do you see that? I would like to see ups and downs. Yeah? We can't say that it doesn't really matter. But also, I want you to think about your own coming to Christ. Okay? Okay? If you grew up in the church at all, you know it wasn't just the faith of your parents that led you to Christ. May may have been grandparents, but more than likely, there were church members there that faithfully shared the gospel with you. It wasn't just like you heard the message once and then you were in, right? You heard it multiple times over and over and over again from a lot of different people before you came to Christ. There's a faithful witness of many within the church that cause you to come to know Him. Now listen to this. Our children need to hear you tell them about Christ. Our children need to hear you tell them about Christ. Tell my kids about Christ. Please. 
children can be taught one way or another. They are. Either through your, your, your activity or through your silence. And if you're passive on this, if you don't fulfill your responsibility to the church, then somebody else is going to take up the charge and they're going to fill it in with their own message. The message of the world. They're going to fall into the seat of the world. But as you are faithful, as you are active, to play your part in sharing your faith with, with these kids, then you actually drown out the lies of this world so that they can hear the truth about Christ. You play an important part in the life of this church, no matter how mature or immature, no matter young, how young or how old, no matter your marital status or your experience in ministry, you play a vital part in the life of this church as you help to lead our children to Christ. We need you. Now, a word to the parents. We, the church, share in the responsibility to love and lead your children, but the primary responsibility belongs to you. We're here to help in that. We want to help in that. We need help in that. But the primary responsibility is yours. It has always been, ever since creation, the responsibility of, of parents, the father as the spiritual leader in particular, to lead their children to trust in God. I mean, consider Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. Or Psalm 78, 5-7. He established his testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel in which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and rise and tell to their children so that we should set their hope in God and that and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Or if, if you need a New Testament example, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You, parents, have the responsibility to teach your children to set their hope in God. And we're here to help. Like I said, we want to help and we need help. But this is your call. You, you've been given this responsibility. Do not try to abdicate that to someone else. Right? This is not the church's responsibility. It's not enough just to kind of bring them in and let them go. You've got to lead them. Now, I'm curious, parents, how much time do you spend worrying about your children's health or what foods they eat or, or things like the activities they participate in or who their doctor's going to be or where they're going to go to school? Now, these are all important things, but they're all very earthly and temporary things. How much time do you spend thinking about their souls, the condition of their souls, whether or not they have faith in Christ? So why are you going to spend all your efforts and energy focusing on things that are going to perish? On, on, on teaching them about how they should live in this life to the neglect of the next. Also, another word to parents. Man, often we kind of see see children, and I'm guilty of this too, seeing children as sort of an obstacle in our pursuit of ministry. 
right? Or of, of evangelism or sharing our faith with other people. We're just like, man, I wish that I could go and do this and have this time with this person or this person, this one, but I gotta take care of my kids. Guys, you, you've been given your flock right there. Your children need Jesus just as much as that international student does. I'm not neglecting the fact that an international student needs Jesus. But your kids need him too, right? Or, or that coworker, or whatever. I mean, if, if you find yourself having to give more of your effort and energy at this time because you have young children to, the, to your kids, that is not a problem. That is a blessing from God. You have this opportunity like you will never have later in life when they are busy running around doing their own things to share their, your faith with them. You have a captive audience in a sense, and they want to hear from you. They love to hear from their parents, so share the gospel with them. That is not a lesser ministry to have to stay at home with your kids. In fact, I commend it because you have an opportunity 24-7 to commend the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and by the grace of God, lead them to Christ at an early age than you would ever have if you sent them off to school or to preschool or to whatever just so that you can have more time to engage with other people. That's not a burden. It's a privilege. Friends, nothing is more important than us loving and leading our children to Jesus. Let's pray for them. Let's think about how we can get involved in their lives. Let's think about ways to minister to the children in our community. And let's tell them about Jesus. Now that I've spent a lot of time talking on secondary issues, these are secondary issues in the text, believe it or not, let's spend a little bit of time looking at the main point. We are called to love children. We are called to lead them to Christ. And third, we must enter the kingdom of God as a child. This is the main point of the passage. This is not ultimately about children. This is about what it means to be a child of God. How we go about entering the kingdom of God. Let's pick up again in verse 14. Jesus says to his disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, verse 15 is not an addition to verse 14, as if to say that the kingdom of God belongs to children and to those who enter as a child. But verse 15 actually defines what Jesus means when he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such is anyone who receives the kingdom of God as a child. This is not geared towards children in any way. This entire passage, verses 13 through 16, is directed to anyone who desires to enter. Anyone who desires to receive the kingdom of God. So it's not primarily about children. Though there are principles and applications we had to look at. This is about what it means to enter the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? That we somehow have to kind of give up knowledge, kind of go back to a you know second grade level of understanding, kind of give up reason, give up intellect, to just kind of assume it on blind faith? Does it mean that we're to be inquisitive, that we're to be unspoiled or innocent? Does it mean that, that we are to be playful or carefree or, or even messy? You know, what, what, what does this mean? Now, in this context, a child is dependent, helpless, and humble. A child has no claim on the kingdom, on anything, but yet they ask for it confidently. 
They take it openly, not because they believe in their intrinsic worth, but because they simply trust in the one they ask. They receive and they do not try to pay back. They simply delight in the gift and the one who gave it. They obey because they trust. The kingdom of God is not something that you and I can create. This is not something that we can purchase. This is not something that we can earn. The kingdom of God is accomplished by Jesus. And it can only be received as a gift. We we can't bring it about by our own efforts, by our own works, by our own religious practices. But we can only receive it by trusting. By resting in Christ. By humbly depending on Him for everything. Like a child, we are powerless and helpless to do anything about it. The only thing that we can do is receive it as a gift. I want you to think about the context again. This passage of receiving the kingdom of God like a child is set in between the clamoring, the fighting, the bickering, the foolish efforts of the disciples and the rich young ruler. The disciples were arguing over who is the greatest. John is trying to stop this innocent man from casting out demons because he doesn't follow John. You know, Jesus warns them about taking their sins seriously, and then he ties it back to their disunity and pointless striving. The disciples rebuke, and they hinder these these children from coming, and then this pious young ruler comes, and he thinks that Jesus will praise him and commend him and give him the kingdom of God. And then James and John will again jockey for position. In all these situations, the sin is trying to prove yourself, trying to exalt yourself, trying to trust in yourself. This is why Paul says in Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works... Well, then he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does Scripture say? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's entitled those. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. If the kingdom of God were given as a result of works, as a result of our greatness, as a result of our possession, uh, our position before men, then God would be obligated to give us the kingdom of God. We are entitled to it. We own it. We deserve it. But we don't. We cannot. There's nothing that we can do. Our sin has separated us from God. We have acted against him. We have been, we have said, we have rebelled against him. We have tried to live as if this is my world and I am God. I don't need you, God. I'm going to live my life without you. I'll only call on you when it's convenient for me. When I feel in those few times like a child and I can do nothing, then I'll call on you. But no, that is sin. That is rebellion. And we can't overcome that. We can't pay that back. God doesn't grade on a curve, right? He doesn't just kind of overlook it because then God wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be loving, he wouldn't be merciful, he wouldn't be righteous, wouldn't be any of those things if God neglected our sin. And so we cannot pay it back. We can't prove ourselves before him. There is nothing that you can do in which you can stand before God and say, look at me, I deserve that place at your right hand. You will never be able to do that, no matter how good you are. 
It can only be given as a gift. Yet God justifies us and he gives us freely what we cannot and do not deserve through Christ, through him alone. And when that happens, then God's lavish grace is put on display. and We see his glory and we marvel at it. and We worship because we see him as he is. He gets all the glory. We simply receive it as a gift by faith, just like a child. William Lane, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. He said, the kingdom may not be entered only by the one who knows. uh, The kingdom may be entered only by the one who knows that he is helpless and small without claim or merit. The unchildlike piety of achievement must be abandoned in the recognition that to receive the kingdom of God is to allow oneself to be given it. You simply can't earn it. It is all of the grace of God to receive humbly, to receive dependently, and to receive with faith like a child. But Jesus also gives us a warning here. He says, truly I say to you, and when he says that, this is an exclamation point. This is Jesus' guarantee. This is his stamp. Okay? He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That shall not enter it is the strongest negation possible in the Greek. He's saying, you will not enter it. You will never belong to the kingdom of God if you do not receive it like a child. It will never, ever, 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 ever be yours if you're trusting in yourself rather than what Christ has already accomplished. Jesus is guaranteeing that it will never happen. And if we think that we can earn it through our effort or through our own foolish notion of self-importance, it can only be received through a childlike trust and simple willingness to follow Jesus. So stop clamoring. Stop laboring. Stop fighting. Stop jockeying. Stop exalting yourselves to try to win God's favor. You can't. You cannot. Only one can. And he's already done it. And that's Jesus. And all that you can do is receive him. You don't deserve God's love, but through Christ you can freely receive God's love. You simply must trust in him the way a child trusts in their parents. That's what Jesus means. Friends, in this first part, I focused on how we are called to love, serve, and lead our children to Christ. Well, here is how our children love, serve, and lead us to Christ. We learn from them what it means to live dependently on another. We learn from them what it means to delight in the gift received rather than trying to earn or pay it back. My sons, they, they're so happy when they get something, no matter how small, and they don't turn around and dig in their pockets. They don't say, no, no, I can't do that. I haven't earned it. They simply say thank you and they give you a hug and they love you, right? That's what it means. We learn from them helplessness. We learn from them dependence. We learn from them finding comfort in their father's love. You see, when we think about discipleship in children, 
This is more than our service to them, or this is more than learning about how to parent or instruct children, as important as those things are. I mean, you learn those things when you do them, and that's a value, but that's not why we do them. In, in, in our loving and serving children, they serve us. We learn from as much from them as they, as we do from Christ. We learn from them how to say, not my will, but yours be done. Just think about that when you see your children, when you see children interact with their parents. What a kindness of God to give us children and families in order to be an illustration of the giving and the receiving of undeserved love. What freedom to know that the kingdom is not earned by what I do, but is freely received through faith in what Christ has already accomplished. Friends, do you trust Jesus like this? Are you still fighting to prove yourself to God? Do you trust God like a child? Or are you trying to earn His love? If God loves you the way a doting parent loves a newborn baby, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have done, regardless of the effort, the cost, the pain, regardless of how much you stink it up and you're always crying, right? Regardless of the inconvenience, they love their children and God loves you more than that. God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you and He offers His kingdom to you freely. But if you would just simply humble yourself and receive it as a gift by trusting in Him as a child. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for that kind of faith. And I pray that we would receive the kingdom of God like a child that we would be humble, that we would be dependent, that we would recognize our own helplessness, and we can't achieve anything before you. And may we trust in Christ completely. And out of a recognition of our state before you, of how we've gone from being a child of wrath to a child of God, I pray that that would affect every attitude, every action, every thought, every word when it comes to our relationships with children whether we are parents, whether we are our grandparents, whether we are not parents at all. And we, have a, we have this privilege given to us to be a display of the gospel and how it's worked in our lives. And God, I pray that we wouldn't look at children as a burden, but we would see, we would just watch and marvel at how they relate to their parents and how that's a reflection of how we ought to relate to you, God. You are our Father. May we run to you and grab your neck and cry out, Abba, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.